Good afternoon and welcome to Startup Nation, our weekly show that celebrates innovation and entrepreneurship. Startup Nation is brought to you by Dublin Business Innovation Centre, where ambitious founders get support to start and scale new businesses. And at Dublin BIC, we work with startups of all sizes. We work with early stage startups to help them get businesses up and running, get them investor ready. And we work with founders to help them raise funding. And that could be anything from the first seed round right up to Series A. So I'm Connor Carmody. I hope you'll stay with me over the next hour as we explore emerging trends in the world of technology and business. And today we'll be looking at the world of creativity and what trends are we seeing in terms of consumer behaviour and business opportunities. And as we're all well aware, the last 12 months have been dire for many businesses. And unfortunately, the entertainment industry has had its own fair share of casualties. We've seen cinemas closing, big sporting fixtures that were played behind closed doors, Music venues, museums and other events have stayed under lock and key and the impact has been significant. The good news, however, is that just as other industries are now innovating and looking for new approaches to reinvent their future, the entertainment industry is also doing the same and is looking to see what the future will look like and that's what we're exploring today. First up, we're delighted to have Maggie Matthews of Behaviour and Attitudes and they recently produced a report on the future of entertainment and the arts so we'll get a sense of what we can expect as we plot out a return to a new normal. Our second guest will talk to us about their mission to enrich and empower the lives of young people through creativity and sustainability. We'll hear from Troy Armour of Junk Couture and how they are developing a global platform to unleash the creative brilliance of young people. And I'm really looking forward to that. And finally, we'll chat to the CEO of one of the leading creators and producers of multi-award winning animated and live action content for for the children's market. Some listeners might be familiar with such shows as Little Roy, Jesse and Nessie. And so we welcome the founder and CEO of Jam Media, John Rice, who will tell us all about the business world of animation later in the show. So each week in our Futurescope slot, we explore trends in a particular sector and we're providing the global perspective, but also what's happening on the ground locally. We discuss the challenges that are being presented and the innovations that are being developed to solve these particular challenges. So to start us off this morning, we're going to discuss Does Absence Make the Heart Grow Fonder? And to discuss, I'm delighted to be joined by Maggie Matthews of Behaviour and Attitudes. And they've produced a report on the future of the entertainment uh, industry and how entertainment and the arts sector has faced enormous challenges since the pandemic began. But consumers have clearly missed this sector and are eagerly awaiting its return. Maggie, good afternoon. Hi. You're very good. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, before we look at the uh, particular report, I do know that you also produce uh, a quarterly report on consumer confidence and you track that on a regular basis. So how are we all feeling right now? Well, um, the, the good news is um, there is there is definitely light at, at the end of the tunnel um, when it comes to consumer confidence. Um, we've just, um, I'm basing this on, on our March figures. Um, our April figures are actually due next week. But even in March, consumer confidence has recovered significantly um, in the last month, and we would expect to see a further significant uh, jump in April. Um, so we're now, um, in terms of confidence, uh, we're at the best levels we've seen since the start of the pandemic, um, which obviously makes sense in terms of you know case numbers down, vaccine rollout continuing, hospitalizations down. Um, so now that we're opening up in earnest, I think people have allowed themselves to to hope a bit, um, to get a bit excited, and yeah, there's 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 a good wave of energy there. 
Oh, that's that's fantastic. I think we could all do it and as we head into summer and as the days get longer and as, uh, uh, you know, uh, hopefully, yeah. hopefully we'll get some, some sunshine around that. We're talking about the world of entertainment and creativity this afternoon and you developed a report on that. Um, what were the main things that you discovered? Well, we did a series of reports um, based on various sectors of the economy that that were under restrictions. Um, and when it came to the, the arts and entertainment report, and so we did this research back, back in November, but what was really, really interesting about that was actually the, the strengths of emotional response um, that we got. Um, so compared to you know some of the other sectors that people were, were clearly missing, um, we got this kind of like big, gush of emotion <laughs> yeah. from consumers when it came to the arts and um, I think that simply because this sector has had has suffered so significantly um, but what was very clear to us um, just how much people are, are missing the arts and the desire to, to return to, to entertainment, to live events is very very strong and um, now, obviously, there's a trade-off between kind of, you know, when I feel safe to do so and, you know, for some people, um, you know, that trade-off, that time will, will come sooner than others. But 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 I think, you know, because we did, um, our reports are uh, a combination of um, survey data and also interviews with people. But um, when it came to the interviews, I suppose what was clear to us was um, people have created this vision um, in their head, you know, the moment when they return to events. Um, whether that's kind of, you know, live music events, concerts, uh, theatre, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and they're really looking forward to that moment. So it, it's going to be emotional. Uh, it's going to be emotional. I think we all can say that. Um, <laughs> there's one of the uh, lines from the report that struck me, and it was around one of the things we are missing is the arts ability to take us away from our day to day lives. Isn't that lovely in kind of, you know, we really miss that ability to get back to escape, to to kind of go out, to meet with our friends and kind of maybe shut ourselves off from the, the, the normal day to day life. Yeah, yeah, totally. And And I think, you know, it's been it's it's such a kind of ironic shame in a way because it, it's been such a tough year um and and one of the things that's been most difficult is that we haven't been able to escape you know yes. from from our homes our immediate family and our sort of the day-to-day kind of grind and um, and the, the arts have always given us that and um, that escape valve that ability to to get away and um, and we've been totally, um, we've been we've been totally removed from that. And and I think sort of so obviously film and, and TV have done a lot of heavy lifting yeah. for us. But what became clear in the report when we talked to people was that that is in no way comparable to the ability of live events or or new events to um, to take ourselves out um, of our of ourselves and our day to day life. And, you know, when, when we spoke to people, one, one lady just described really powerfully um, what it's like to sit in a crowded auditorium, to have the lights go down and to be transported into an entirely different time and place and, um, and, and where we really lose ourselves in, in the story or the movement or the music or whatever it is. And I think we've really struggled to recreate this in our own living rooms and um, that's one of the things that we've really felt the lack of Wow yeah I can even, I can, I can feel it when you say the lights are going down and the music <laughs> is coming up wow um, we did try to or we have tried as best as we can to replace it with, with streaming and you do identify yeah. this big global trend um, and yeah. indeed some of the businesses that are emerging from that talk a little bit about that yeah, I mean, I think streaming's been in a really important way in which we've kept in touch with with the arts this year. Um, 
and, and it has grown from strength to strength and there have been some brilliant success stories. I mean, we've, um, you know, we've seen like, for example, the Dublin International Film Festival has done a fabulous job this year of, of you know, doing um, streaming their, streaming their, their offering and, you know, we've seen um, some of the big um, theatres, opera houses br- bring that stuff to the, to the people. And, and I think people, I mean, people have been blown away by what's been available to them, mm, you know, in, yeah. in the comfort of their own home. And, um, there's definitely a market for this um, in the longer term, particularly kind of, I suppose, getting those really high-profile um, productions to to a wider audience. You know, um, I think people were really excited, for example, to see, you know, Hamilton being streamed on, on Disney yes, Plus yeah. early, earlier in, in the pandemic. But, but, but I suppose it's kind of finding the role for, for everything. So streaming doesn't plug the gap entirely. Um, it's really great stopgap, don't, don't get me wrong. Um, but... There's also, you know, a big part of attending arts events is, is the overall experience, the buzz, the, the shared experience, the kind of being there in the moment. Yeah. And when we ask people about streaming, um, you know, and there was lots of really, really positivity towards streaming, but um, I suppose what, what people told us was that, you know, um, that's the bit they're missing. So that buzz um and the excitement of being yeah. there in the yeah. moment. So, so in a way, I think that's a real challenge for for people doing streaming now, how can they create not just not the same buzz as a live event, but some sense of occasion around it? And I think you know what's clear is like if you're a streaming, really, you know, a, a big um, whether it's a music event or an arts event in any way, like it shouldn't feel like just sticking on Netflix. On yeah, your, yeah. On, your, on a Tuesday, yeah. You know? It's got to be immersive. You've got to feel part of it. And yeah. so, does that mean then we hear a lot uh, of talk about? you know, the future of our world being this kind of hybrid world when we talk about return to yeah. work. And so is is the future of entertainment, did it come up uh, that there's a, there's a place for a hybrid um, entertainment sector? Uh, yeah, I mean, a- absolutely. And, and I think, you know, it's, it's really exciting um, to, to see how it will all kind of pan out because, you know, um, what I suppose what we really hope here is that we'll, we'll take the good things, you know, like... Um, you know, uh, streaming um, has, has done. You know, it's it has an ability to kind of bring museums, galleries, theatre to a much wider audience. And you know, that's something that that's a positive thing the pandemic has given us. So, you know, geography should become irrelevant. You know, I I should have as easy access to the Prado or the Met as, yeah. as I do to the National Gallery. And you know, that's 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 huge. That's really significant um, shift as well. Um, but at the same time, I think we will also um, be much more appreciative of what's on our doorstep and what we can access in person. And, you know, I, I think there'll be a lot of focus on being in the present moment and, um, you know, and, and being present in the present. If, if yes, you know yeah, you I understand. understood. And um, you, you mentioned there that notion of, you know, the museum, the great museums mm. of the world should be available to us. And, and some of them are. I know the mm. Louvre and other people have put their, have opened up their galleries and I can look at them online. Um, does augmented reality and we were talking about that much earlier in the series but does augmented reality have a part to play in this new world that we're trying to create oh yeah absolutely and i think again this is you know this is such an exciting um, and juncture to be in really you know i think um what we'll see in the next little while is how um the digital experience and the real life experience will interact yeah um and i and i think you know there's been great you know um, ventures in a number of museums where they've used augmented reality to, to totally reinvigorate um, their their exhibits 
and you know to let people experience things in in a totally different way you know like think about um you, you know something that might be quite dry like um i've seen examples of say you know caveman exhibits yes. and um, augmented reality can can actually kind of bring, bring you in the moment in the moment you know imagine what it's like if a you know if a if, if, you know scary beast is, is coming up behind you, you know, wow. in, in this yeah, moment. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think, and, and I think what's really good about that is that you know the younger generation um, will respond really, really well to that, and um, you know, and and things like you know we've already been primed by the likes of Pokemon Go, and yeah, you know yeah. we've seen it happen in real life, and and I know that I have a, a six-year-old boy, and I know that you know that kind of thing would totally float his boat. He'd be really excited by that. Fantastic, and. Yeah. Um, we we talked a little bit, you and I, just there about uh, escaping the everyday and this kind of notion of of how do you how do you get this virtual experience? So obviously, escapism is something to be to be thinking about when designing upcoming events. Yeah. Um, so what might change? Uh, did anything come up in the report about what we'd like to see in our future events? Well, I, I think I mean this is is probably might sound like quite a basic point but but i think what came out of the report was one of the biggest things that people are missing is is fun yeah um frivolity just enjoyment you know so so i think that will be one thing for um arts businesses as they're they're getting set up to go um you know we're really looking to let our hair down and um, it's been a very hard year not just because of the pandemic there's been a lot of kind of heavy stuff going on yeah um, and and i think the future the the immediate future will be um us trying to um trying to catch up on that enjoyment and um, sense of togetherness fun escapism even hedonism you know yeah. there, there's a lot of appetite for this and, the, ro- and the, roaring, the roaring 20s Maggie <laughs> totally. uh, the Maggie that we had after the after the 1918 pandemic yeah uh, we're totally we're all up for that you know <laughs> and, and we deserve that <laughs> we, so, des- so we I, deserve it yeah so so I think um, our return to the real um, you know the arts can be such a, a magical fun and um, escapist place and that's what we really need right now lovely picture um tell me from your perspective and, and maybe it came up in the report but even from your mm. from your uh, uh perspective what might the next kind of 12 to 24 months look like and i suppose in a particular we're an innovation show is there anything that you see coming down the track from kind of new features or uses of technology in in the art and entertainment space that, that we might think well i didn't see that coming oh <laughs> tricky tricky <laughs> question um I think um, I think that you know what we'll see in the next twelve to 20 months, twenty-four months is the the gradual transition, and I, I think what we will see is a period of um, of experimentation and yeah. innovation, and um, in terms of kind of what what technology can do for us. Yeah, and um, I, I I think what we've realised from the pandemic is. You know the the strengths and weaknesses of the technical digital experience yeah. versus the strengths and weaknesses of the the, the, the real life, the real world in yeah. the moment experience. And and I would really hope what we get out of that in the next twelve to twenty four months is real focus on keeping improving and on those two directions. And as we said earlier, kind of how we bring them together as well. So it's kind of the the best of the best of both worlds. Um, yeah. And, and I think we'll see, um, you know, it, it, we are right 
for a lot of innovation and a lot of new ideas coming out. So it will be exciting. Exciting time. And you're probably right in, in that it's that kind of mm. um, hybrid approach that mm. we just mentioned. And it's, it's how do we, we do want to go back to the, the live event. We want that feeling, but we also probably do want to do that in a safe way. I know you were talking in the yeah. report about we want to feel safe. We want to feel that the events we go into. So the, the events are probably not going to be as crowded. They're probably not yeah. going to be as jam-packed as before. Uh, yeah. Am I right in thinking that? Yeah, and, you know, we, we asked people kind of um, in the report, you know, what what would they feel comfortable with? And, and kind of most people started to feel comfortable with the idea of kind of events with kind of 50% capacity with, you know, a lot of uh, hygiene um, implementation there, mask wearing, distancing, et cetera, et cetera. And, like, look, it'll be, um, you know, it, it, it'll be a slow comeback. Yeah. Um, and different groups will move faster than others. What, what's interesting was in November, and um, when we did this research, and um, we saw a clear sense where the younger groups were more eager to get eager to get back quicker yeah. than the older groups. Yeah. Actually, now that's beginning to shift. The older groups now vaccinated are, of course, are, yeah. are out there, um, and and they're more gung ho. So so that's that's interesting. Yeah. Um, but but I, I I think the thing is, um, you know, we're we have missed it so much, I think, even a quite muted and limited experience um, yeah. compared to what we would have expected in 2019 and um, yeah. will give us immense joy. So, um, you know, slow, we're, so we're, we're walking excited. back slowly. We're learning to use the technology. We're going to live in a hybrid world. But the good news is that that it's it's we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon, Maggie. It was great to chat with you. Yeah, thank you so much. Take care. That was Maggie Matthews of Behaviour and Attitudes. So, moving on, each week we bring you an innovator who has spotted a gap in the market. They're developing a new product to address that gap and they're going to tell us the why and the how. And I'm delighted to be joined this week by Troy Armour of Junk Couture. Hi, Troy. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. Hi, Connor. Good to be on. Great to have you with us. Um, Tell us about Junk Couture. What is it and what do you do? Um, the easiest way to describe it is an integrated media and entertainment business. But I think to get into the, the real nitty-gritty, I need to tell you about, you know, my time as a teenager and in school. And I suppose if I go back to that time, I was a creative kid. And I was, I, I loved making things with my hands and painting. And I was always in the art room. And one of the things that I failed at, though, was sports. Right. I was the kid who was last picked for the football team. No, but I, I, actually, I was the kid that the, the team were trying to get to the other team. It was like, well, you take it. Right? And what that does is that actually leaves you feeling very on the outside of things. Because as we all know, the sports teams in school bring so much social capital. It's the cool kids and they have a tribe. And I suppose, you know, when you're a kid, you don't realize that. But like for me, I hit a ball. Like if you ask my father, eight or nine hours a day to try and bridge the gap, but I could never do that. Yeah. So I suppose what Junkature really is, is it's the sport that I would have played as a teenager. Right. So, and it took me a long time to understand that because 10 years ago when it started, it was kind of the hobby that I did, right? So I did it on Sundays because I had another business. And so Sunday evenings just to go off into hotels around the country up these small stages and have kids come in and they would compete against each other. And it's a bit of a stretch for people to see that it's a sport. 
But if you are afraid of competitive school, yeah. this is your playground. This yeah. is where you get to show off your skills and then compete against other teenagers, get accepted, become part of a tribe. Um, it, it's, it's, it's kind of growing organically because of that. And I say to people, that's the gap in the market. Yeah. You know, that's the gap. And that's why schools take it so well. Very good. Um, it's a lovely bit of background, Troy. Um, but, but explain to me, so it's a fashion competition, if if I'm correct, and it's aimed at it's aimed at school kids, pr- pr- primarily in around the TY uh, age group, I guess. Yeah, I suppose initially started in TY, um, but it has kind of sprung out from that now because some of the kids that we would see coming through have entered three or four times. Right. So it is it is open to kids from age eleven to eighteen because in Northern Ireland, second level schools uh, start at age eleven. And we would see a lot more younger age groups in Northern Ireland taking part. But then in Ireland, for example, Marius Malin entered four years in a row. Um, Maximus Sullivan entered two years in a row. A lot of these kids now enter a younger age, figure out what, you know, they need to win um, and come back better and stronger each year. So it's, it's all teenagers. Right. And it's a, it's at its heart, it's a fashion competition where you ask uh, the, the school kids to model or to design high-end couture wear, fashion wear from everyday junk. Is that is that the, the core proposition? That's the challenge. The underlying challenge is there's, 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 it's not fair to say it's a fashion competition on its own because the underlying challenge is you must create something wearable from trash. You then must go and promote that, and then you must then present it on a stage with a piece of choreography. So I say to people, it's like, it's like starting a business. Right? You need an idea originally. So what's the spot? What materials I'm going to use? Then you have to create a prototype, which is make the outfit. Then you have to go and market it to a mass audience. So we have this online marketing thing that they have to do. Right. Both and so on. And that gets them out into the marketplace, gets them out into malls and on TV and radio stations and these kids get exposed to all this kind of stuff that they wouldn't normally and they got an elevator pitch which is you got one minute in the free arena to, to inspire 5,000 of an audience it's fantastic. So not alone are they designing uh, the outfit, but they're also then learning about the business of fashion. So they're learning about how to kind of pitch it, how to kind of sell it, how to kind of... So it's a, round, it's, it's, it's a rounded kind of approach to business, I guess. Yeah, you know, I'm a big believer in, in create your own job versus get one, right? And you see, if you, if you look at what I'm about, woven through the whole junketure process, it's not even about the business of fashion, but I'll give you an example, right? So I'm... Um, this young guy from Rathalman, he made a draft out of old election posters. Um, some gay election posters, he's been back four or five years ago. And so the task is set for a week, how many votes can you get for your draft? So he landed down to the T-shirt office with his model with him. They waited all day. They managed to get a hold of Amber Kenny. Six one news across the road. And then by the six one over, he appeared on six one news talking about that. Isn't this great what young people are doing? And um, recycling you know, election posters. And it's just for a young person to use their imagination, to use the platform to go out and figure out, if I was marketing a product tomorrow, I don't need money. I just need to use my imagination. There are channels there. If I step out of my comfort zone, I can find them. It's a very entrepreneurial process, the whole thing. Like you're starting with a piece of rubbish. Yes. And And it's not only are you making it into something, but you then have to go and market it to an audience 
And because I asked you tomorrow, I mean, I couldn't do it now, right? Yeah. I said tomorrow that I had a one-minute elevator pitch on, on a stage in the free arena, and I had to make 5,000 people yeah. cheer. I mean, you see them before it. They'd be shaking. Yeah, They'd yeah. Be shaking. And yeah. then, you know, I chat to people about this thing about soul and, and the energy around people. That, what I see in the free arena is somebody that's 15 coming on stage, and it's almost like the energy of 5,000 people transfers into them. Fantastic. Because they just come alive. In, in in a minute, it's unbelievable the connection that they get with an audience. You know, it, it, and, and what it does is then it, it just lifts people. Yeah. So they go away. And I'm, one of the things that I, I mention is the guy who won in 2019, he, he went to the Cannes Film Festival with us and he went to the Royal Film Premier in London. But he was interviewed after a year and the interviewer said to him, what was the biggest thing you got out of this? And that you were in helicopters and you were here and you were there. And he paused for a second and he just said, the biggest thing I got out of this is my personality. Yeah, brilliant. Isn't it, isn't it wonderful Isn't it wonderful to think that, you know, 15-year-olds can stand up on stage, as you say, in front of 5,000 people and deliver a kind of a one-minute pitch? I couldn't have done it. Um, so I think, I think that's just fantastic. We're a show about kind of startups and entrepreneurship and growing businesses and, and that. Um, where, where's the company at? And, and kind of, you know, talk to me a little bit about, about funding and, and where you're at and, and what does the, the future hold for you? So we're 10 years old. Now, I say 10 years, but really for the first seven, it was, it was a hobby, mixed with a hobby and trying to figure out what it was as a business. Um, and I, I have to be honest, a lot of this happened by fluke, by me, by yeah. me, right? It wasn't but by design. I thought out the very start with this, could we match the Young Science Exhibition in terms of what it has done for science and Ireland? Could we do the same for creativity? No. In the last three years, I myself and have I started a master's in entrepreneurship at MIT and trying to take this as kind of my time away from the business to go, what can Junkature become, right? And so the thing that has come out of that for me and what my thinking is, is I believe Junkature belief belongs in a space somewhere, something somewhere as Formula E or, or WWE. It's one of these, it's a tour around the world. Yeah. So we actually have launched a global tour starts in Tokyo every year and it traverses the world it's in the 13 cities, one every two weeks, which then would give us content that we can sell to a streaming body. So the same way as we watch Formula One every two weeks. Yeah. Um, you need to tune in to watch Adventure Final in Sao Paulo or in Cape Town. Um, and then I kind of a piece through this one. So we have this idea of this kind of Eurovision of fashion at the end of every September, every year where the winners from all those continents, the 13 cities, would come together to kind of have this huge explosion of color, creativity, young people just being great from all over the world, diversity, you know, it, it, and fond of the Eurovision fashion. But as a business model, it would be then very based around performing EV, so it means people are events, tickets, sponsorship, media, merchandise. So it so moved, kind of at, it? brilliant. So so going global with the taking it around the world, as you say, and then it, it becomes this this kind of global platform. Uh, I guess is is kind of what the vision looks like. Yeah, yeah, that, that's that's exactly it. Um, young people will get to express themselves both digitally. I mean, the demand for self generated content has never been as big. And the other part then is, and this is the thing that there is there is a people impact. You know, a people and planet impact. And 
the way I describe that is it, it is that young guy saying, you know, like, find my personality, but it is, if you are, if you were, if I, if I had access to sport and I was good at it as a kid, the social capital I would have gained from that is, yeah. is, is, is massive, right? And so now kids who, who aren't naturally sporty have got a different avenue to find the same social capital. So that is a massive um, thing for those young people. And I believe it's got world value. You know, you know, and it's the same. Like at the minute we're onboarding in five countries at the minute, and they find the world when New York, Milan, Paris, London, and the UAE. And, you know, it's 20 schools a week in New York at the minute signing up. There's 15 in Milan a week signing up. We don't have to go in and do a hard sell. Once we say, this is what this is about. Yeah. Immediately yep. people, and you do get people in the room going, actually, that was me, kid, too. I, I didn't realize it's a sport for me. There, there is an hour, right? Yeah. Um, and so all of a sudden, that's, 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 you can see it happening. And then from the planet point of view, like there's this girl from Carlo, Grace Maher, and she made a dress on her, using the ring poles, right, right. of 63,000 Coca-Cola cans. Wow. Right, imagine, right? So collecting 63,000 Coca-Cola cans, she had the whole community involved. Fantastic. And all, all I can do there is, is it is basically letting people see that in that area that they come from, that in two months, 60,000 pounds of coke would go to land. Not land, so they need to recycle, but they're going to yep. go to a bin. Yep. That means somebody else has something to do with it. And what I'm saying to people is, we can create this circular engineer in the future where people actually naturally see, I don't have to put it in the bin. And you know this, right, the thing that's great about that is, because that's what we used to do 40 years ago. Yes. When yeah. I was a kid, you took a glass jam jar, you washed it out, and you put your pens in it. Very good, very good. Now you go and buy a plastic thing in a shop. Right? You know, so it's just trying to, to push that back a little bit. That's kind of the kind of transformation I'm trying to achieve. Fantastic. Uh, I love the piece around the, the people and the uh, the impact um, and that kind of social capital piece. So, Troy, listen, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon and the very best of luck for the future. Thank you. That's Troy Armour of Junk Couture and a fabulous uh, a platform aimed at um, uh, school kids, I guess, really, and, and trying to unleash that creativity. Um. I'd just like to pick up on something there. So we were talking about some of the elements required for start-up success. And this week, uh, I was thinking of some of the terms that you might hear and the elements that you need to get right at the very start of the, the startup journey. And for me, the first one is around a value proposition and being able to kind of very clearly articulate the why someone should do business with you. And I think we picked some of it up there with Troy. But it should be convincing a potential, a potential customer why your service or your product is of more value to them than maybe similar uh, offerings from your competition. And a really good value proposition, this is what we do, this is why we do it, and this is who we do it for, gives you a really strong advantage over your competitors. And, you know, for many consumers, that's the first thing they encounter when exploring your, your new brand or your product. So I think getting a very strong value proposition is a must uh, for startups. Another phrase uh, that you'll hear in the, the kind of startup world is MVP, and that's minimum viable product. Well, well what is that? Well, I think what it is is a product with just enough features that you've developed to go out and attract some early customers and validate the, the idea earlier on. What, what you don't want to do is spend all of your time designing a product uh, and then when you take it to the market, it's wrong and nobody wants it. So by developing an MVP, a minimum viable product, you have enough features, you bring it to the market, you test what customers 
reaction is going to be and then you reframe or reiterate that product such that you, you take on board uh, the, the customer feedback. And it allows you to get to market quickly and validate some of your thinking. And the last phrase I, I was considering uh, was around product market fit. And you might hear that. And it really describes, I suppose, a scenario in which you've built a product, customers have accepted it, they're buying it, they're using it, and they're telling others about it. Uh, and, and that then convinces you that there's enough customers available to sustain the growth uh, of the product. So it means finding a good market with a good product and joining both of those together and getting revenue generation. The one final piece of advice uh, for us this week is revenue uh, is is kind of key. So the successful startups generate revenue at the earliest opportunity. They get out as fast as they can out of the building, to use that phrase, and they get customer validation very quickly. Um, So our advice to you uh, on our inside track for today is that sales and selling is a kind of a skill that you have to have and getting customer validation really quickly. So that's the inside track for today on Startup Essentials. We'll take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment for our big interview with John Rice of Jam Media. Don't go away. So welcome back to Startup Nation, our weekly salute to innovation, entrepreneurship and the technologies that are shaping our future world. And we've been talking about how starting and scaling a business is tough. And every week we speak to a founder who has built and scaled a company. And we're looking to see if we can uncover some ingredient that might just inspire or motivate some of our listeners. And founded in 2002, Jam Media is one of the leading creators and producers of multi-award winning animated and live action content for children. Jam Media has worked with many of the big guns in the industry, from Amazon Prime to BBC to DreamWorks. Not a bad CV at all. So today, I'm delighted to welcome John Rice, the CEO and co-founder of Jam Media. John, good afternoon and thanks for joining us. Good afternoon, Connor. Thanks for having me. Yeah, not at all. Delighted to have you. Um, Tell us a bit about you and your background first before we start. I was reading somewhere two things about you. Firstly, you wanted to be a a line tamer when you were a kid. (laughs) And secondly, your first job was on the production line of a pork processing plant. Uh, um, yes, that's true. I mean, there's still a big part of me that wants to be a line tamer, to be honest <laughs> with you. Um, although I think uh, there's probably not too many um, jobs in that market um, at the moment. A declining um, market, yeah. D- definitely. Um, uh, yes, and, and yeah, uh, two summers I, I spent in uh, Denny's on the, on the, the factory floor. Very um, which was uh, which was quite a, a learning process. But, um, but actually, funnily enough, you know, I suppose that kind of um, understanding of a pipeline is, is, uh, is, is a lot of kind of what I do as well. And, and you know, I suppose that whole process in, in manufacturing, I maybe uh, applied um, many years later to, um, to how we produce and manufacture our Fantastic. Yeah. Every day is a, every day's a learning day. Isn't that what they say? That's right. Yeah, That's yeah. Right. Tell me about your early career. You started with a 20th Century Fox um, is where you started your animation career. Uh, that's right, yeah. Um, I had been in um, in college doing animation in Valley Firmus. Um, this is uh, in the, um, around 1990 and um, had uh, decided that I wanted to go and get a job. So the, the largest uh, animation studio, second largest animation studio in the world was based in Park Gate Street in Dublin, Sullivan right. Bluth Studios. Um, and oh, Su- Sullivan Bluth, yeah, yeah, I remember that name, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, they made films like uh, An American Tale. Yes, yeah. All Dogs Go to Heaven. And they really were, they really, at the time, were kind of putting it up to Disney, who were, you know, obviously um, the largest, still are. Um, yeah. And uh, the days of did, Southern Blues had been established for about eight years at that point. Um, and I went in and I did a test and, I, and, uh, and they gave me a job. So I kind of told my... Um, <laughs> my uh, uh, the, the head of the course in Bally Fermic, kind of what I thought of him, which wasn't the whole lot, and uh, I left, and um, and the day that I was to start was the day they went uh, into liquidation. And, Great um, timing, John. Yeah, it was fantastic timing, so there was people, oh, there was people, a lot of very upset people, um, when right. I walked into the lobby that, that morning, as you can imagine. Yeah. Um, so, shortly, well, Shortly after that, um, um, 20th Century Fox had wanted to set up a, an animation studio in the US to, to rival uh, Disney, and they thought the, the, a great way of doing that was to bring um, Don Blues and Gary Goldman, um, who were running the studio, um, and the creative forces behind the studio, and uh, to bring them over to Phoenix, Arizona, along with um, 120 or so of uh, the Irish crew that were in Dublin with them. And somehow, although I hadn't worked in Southern Blues, um, uh, somehow I was one of those people that was asked to come over. You, you so, managed. Uh, you managed to sneak on and uh, and get on. I think. Yes, I don't know. It was. It was a filing mistake, but I wasn't asking any questions. I was happy. I'll take my ticket and I'll go. Thanks very much. Exactly. Um, exactly. So, so that was the start. I'm going to talk to you about Jam Media uh, in a minute and, and describe sure. the the journey for us. But um, we're talking about the the creative world this morning, and I'd love to get your sense on on what's happening around kind of the entertainment world and and what are the what are the big trends that are happening at the moment. Well, I, I, I mean, it's 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 it, it, like you know this ever shifting sand that is just um, shifting um, because of COVID even more quickly and where it kind of stops is, is really difficult at this point to figure out. Um, I mean, certainly we all know how, you know, people's um, viewing habits have, have evolved over the period and, 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 and how great that's been, I guess, for television and how terrible it's been for the theatrical releases. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I think that, this, that people's um, appetite for content has never been stronger and that, that's across all demographics from preschoolers to, to, to the elderly. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that that's likely to change. I would worry if I was a theatre owner now or if I was in the business of, of creating blockbusters. I think that's going to be extremely um, difficult. I don't think it's going to, to be back to the way it was for a while, if, if ever. I think that's a, that's a negative shift. But um, I, I think that people um, and the kind of the, the long form serialization with, with um, you know, cinematic um production values of content is what people are learning, uh, expecting. Mm. I think that there'll be more people with, um, with streaming services. I would, I would, with subscriptions, I would worry about, you know, some of the more ad supported, um, commercial broadcasters and, yeah. and how are they, how are they going to be able to, to pivot? And, and some of them are pivoting very late, I think. And, yeah. and some, there's going to be some casualties. I think that in, in, in how we, um, actually go and produce content that's changing and evolving you know certainly from i never would have thought that we would have been able to have you know 90 people working remotely um in jam the, the studios i always thought yeah. that you had to be in there and we had to be you know um collaborating physically 
um, and kind of touching off each other, but um, that's not the case. Um, so I think that how we actually produce content is, 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 is utterly changed forever. It's, it's amazing, um, isn't it, when you, when you think about how our world in a year has changed and the things that we say we couldn't do, actually it turns yeah. out we can do them very easily. And you mentioned yeah. the production piece. Can I just ask you one, uh, John, because we were talking earlier on this afternoon with Maggie Matthews of Behaviour and Attitudes, and they had just published a survey which said that we're all just dying to get back into theatres and back into live venues and stuff. You were kind of you were kind of saying you'd be slightly worried. Do does that kind of live media? Do they have to shift how they're going to do their business? Do you think? I, I, well, I think live is live is different. I think the people are going to want to go back to, to you know to seeing a play or seeing a gig, uh, and I think that's gradually going to get back um, to the way it was. In fact, it, that, that could very well as soon as the restrictions die, that could just burst into you yeah. know. A, you know, straight back. In fact, you know, almost like a, um, you know, the Roaring Twenties. Yes. Um, I, I think with um, with um, with film, I think it's it's slightly different because it's not it's not really a live performance yeah. that you're getting. And I think the people have become very used, and and of course the technology that exists in people's you know living rooms now, you know, can give you know a cinema-like experience. Um, you know, yeah. with sound and picture and, and 4K and 8K and, and all of that, you are able to recreate um, a cinema experience. And nobody, uh, nobody, oh. nobody eating sweets and popcorn noisily beside That's you. Right. <laughs> yes. That's right. You can enjoy it yourself. Um, can I ask you, uh, tell us a little bit about Jam Media, because um, you're an award-winning, uh, uh, you're an award-winning kind of organisation. You have won a, a BAFTA, so you're very successful at what you do. Firstly, tell us what is it that you do? Uh, well, in a, in, a, in, a, in a sense, it's kind of what we do is we, we create um, entertainment brands for children. Right. So, and, and we do that typically by telling stories and, and inventing characters. And we do it across animation mostly. Um, and I suppose in terms of our style of animation, it's, it's that of a kind of a hybrid. So we like to mix and match uh, a whole pile of different animation techniques to create a kind of a distinctive, non-derivative um, visual um, which hopefully will help us to stand out in a very crowded marketplace. Um, and, but we also do live action um, occasionally. About 80% of our, of our content that we produce is animation and 20% is live action. So at the moment we're producing a, a science fiction comedy musical um, in space um, for the BBC called Nova Jones. Right. So that's coming out and that's, that's all live action, albeit with a lot of kind of um, uh, visual effects and kind of green screen technology and that kind of stuff. But um, primarily it's animation, but we do like to do a bit of live action every now and again. Okay. And how did you how did you find your way into Jam into setting up Jam Media with your co-founders? I mean, uh, you, you had a very successful career, I guess, with 20th Century Fox. You're in the US. What prompted you to kind of say, actually, I need to get stuck into doing this by myself? Well, I, I came back to I came back to um, to Ireland to do a, a postgrad um, in multimedia because I could see I was I was very much married to pencil and paper traditional style yeah. um, you know drawing characters or animating was was done as it had been done for you know a hundred years or so but um, I wasn't I could see how you know digital technologies was creeping into various departments in in um, in Fox and in MTV. Um, and I wasn't changing with it and I wasn't being given the, the opportunity to, to change with it. So I, I came back to, to do a postgrad 
um, which I loved. Um, it just opened up a whole new world for me, and I could see that you could, you know, deliver. You could, we could deliver, um, you know, broadcast quality animation yeah. um, by using new media platforms, and, and uh, in particular, a, a little program that is now defunct called Flash, which was like a, a two hundred euro program that you could purchase, and it, I remember. it really could, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and that, that if you used it in a certain way, it wasn't created for animators, but you, you could use it in a certain way and you could deliver really quickly um, some quite, you know, really impressive um, um, animated content that, that would be of broadcast quality. So myself and my two partners, um, JAM is an acronym for John Al Mark. So right. um, myself and Al and Mark, we, um, we set up JAM and, and really I think we set it up as kind of an excuse to hang around with each other that might not necessarily uh, include the pub. Right. Um, okay. And just make stuff, um, and uh, and that's what we did. We just started making stuff, little shorts, um, jokes, kind of adult oriented short jokes. Um, originally, that we were hoping that we would be able to sell over the web, and of course, nobody ever wanted to pay for anything over the web yeah. at that point in time. Um, they do now, but um, that was how we were able, to, I suppose, to hone our skills in, in, in being able to create in this digital way. Fantastic. And, <clears throat> I mean, you've gone on since then to build a, 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 a huge and highly successful company. You've over 100 people working. You've got offices around Ireland, you know, Dublin, Belfast. Um, talk about, and for our listeners who are kind of starting businesses and are probably at a much earlier stage than you, talk a little bit about that journey of getting from the three guys sitting around uh, to to over a hundred people and, and offices and award winning. What what did that look like? Oh, I mean, it, it was a, 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 a windy and, and rocky road. Um, often, um, I, I mean, I think it was probably um, the the biggest advantage that we had back then was that we didn't know how hard it was going to be. I, I yeah, think. yeah, we didn't um, know. Yeah, well, yeah, ignorance is bliss sometimes. Ignorance is bliss, and you know, I, I guess blind optimism and a, and a, and a, and a, a degree of, of self-belief we knew that we were you know we were doing something that was different to what was kind of out there so we always had that kind of i suppose that we can we can do it but how do we get to um how do we get to people to see it um so i, I mean i suppose it kind of it, it came really when um for a goof it was my my daughter's third birthday i i, I cut out her head in photoshop and i put her on a little animated body uh, a run cycle um and invited um our friends to, to come to her birthday party and we got such a and sent it around as an attachment and, and got such an overwhelming response to this kind of personalized animation um, from the friends in fact one of them even saying I'll pay you if you do that for, <laughs> for yeah. my little kid um, we thought we might be onto something and, and so we developed a, um, initially what it was was it was a piece of software really that would that would allow for this personalization um, of animated content. Um, and then we thought, well, we, we, this could become a TV show. So um, we kind of then um, reversioned that into into a TV show with a central child character and this magical world with a bunch of animal character friends. And and we uh, we called it Pick Me, and we we brought it to RTE and um, and the head honcho on RTE at the time in in their Lotus, right. and uh, he said, yeah, let's do it. And uh, that was kind of the start of it. And before you know, we knew it, we were. We were, um, you know, we had 22, you know, artists yeah. that we had worked with or went to college with in the, in the Guinness Enterprise Centre and uh, we were making it and that was kind of the start. And Yeah. But did you, I mean, I, I suppose, did you set out with a plan to build this kind of global, well-known brand leader in what it does or was it more 
we made it up as we went along. I, mean, I, I, I think rather than, I suppose, building the Jam Media brand, which, which I guess gets built as, as you become better known, it, it, it's more about building individual brands within that, okay. um, within Jam Media. So, so we would look at, at every show that we develop or produce, we would look at it as, as a kind of a separate entity with a separate balance sheet and, 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 and a separate way of financing. And, 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 when, and I guess my main job is still that kind of one of an entrepreneur, but it's, a, it's being entrepreneurial with each of these shows. So going out then and, and pitching it and trying to finance it and finding distributors for it and, and production partners or co-producers um, to work on it and, and talent to be attached to it and then, and then putting it out onto the, onto the world. Is, so it's more, it's more really about building the brands that Jam makes rather than building the Jam brand itself. But that happens as a, as a result of it. So and that's a really interesting uh, piece there. So when you develop a new property uh, or a new series or a new show, each one of those in its own right is a small little mini business and you've got to finance it, you've got to build it, you've got to sell it. Uh, yeah. Did I hear you correctly? Yes, you did. Yeah, yeah no, that's, 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 uh, that's totally how I see it. It's, it's like each, each, each series that we're trying to get off the ground is a, is a startup. Wow. So you're doing multiple startups every, well, I don't know how many you do a year, but every, every time you start one, it's a whole new startup. It's a whole new, what are we going to do? How are we going to build it? How are we going to sell it? Yes. And what is the revenue model then that, that accrues to you from, from the series? Because I'm, I'm kind of guessing you have a fixed overhead. You've gotten lots of people working for you and they have to be paid uh, and mm-hmm. you're developing new series as you go. But I, I presume you have, you sell and you continue to get rights of the stuff that you build and sell. Yes, I mean, you know, we we are we, we own um, for the most part we own all of the the IP in the productions that we that we carry out. So there is a kind of a, a continual revenue stream um, in terms. So I mean, the financing of the show is, is is often quite different. So you'll go around and you'll try and get your kind of we would call it an anchor broadcaster. So your main investor um, that will kind of stump up most of the money. And yeah. depending on, on who they are, they would come in then for a back end position on that, on, on whatever profits the, the, um, on the, the series makes. Then you look for pre-buys in other territories, maybe smaller territories um, around the world. You might be able to go, if it's got a, a decent co- uh, toy play component to it, yeah. you might be able to go and get some money from a, from a toy company or, or licensors, um, distribution advance in terms of program sales. Um, there's obviously great um, tax credits available in Ireland, so we're able to raise about a third of what it will cost um, in production um, to, to, by, by way of the tax credits, which is you know, vital for our industry. Yeah. Um, and then you, you get it 100% finance. We may put in some money ourselves, jam into it. We try not to, <laughs> yeah. try not to use our own money, but occasionally we do. And then um, we go and we make it, and we hope that you know when when the episodes are complete that we're able to sell that internationally. And then you know what can happen out of that is you know you may get a later on a, a more licensing deals, more merchandising deals, more publishing deals, book deals, yeah. um, that kind of stuff. So um, it, it it has quite a long tail. You know, the, you know, a, a, a show can certainly continue to generate revenue. You know, ten years after it's been made. Okay, so but that's that's it's so fascinating to hear you think that each each show each uh, project has to be taken as a as a separate entity has to be financed, built, sold, developed. It has a long tail of revenue that comes in, which kind of funds you, you know is revenue into you, and then you start again and again. So you're doing how many how many kind of shows would you do across a year? Would you reckon? 
Well, we try to do three. Three, yeah. Yeah. So three startups a year. Uh, most most of us don't get that done in a lifetime, and you're doing three each year. <laughs> <laughs> Fair play, John. Um, can I ask you, uh, I was reading something uh, for you, and one of the biggest problems you mentioned was around breaking into the States um, and trying to, I suppose, to scale and to grow into the States and to finance uh, that expansion. Talk a little bit about that. I mean, I, 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 that was probably that was some time ago. I don't, I don't, I, we don't have that problem anymore. And, and I think it's, it's largely because of the, um, the, the US streamers like Netflix and yeah. Amazon um, coming into the picture. And they, and they seem to have a much more of an openness, I think, to work with, you know, non-US um, entities because, you know, they have this kind of a, a global view, what they call a global, yeah. you know, so it's global but local kind of view. And they, and they have, a, you know, European quotas that they have to fill as well. So we've found that in over the past five years or so that um, America's been a much easier nut to crack for us. In fact, we've, we've gotten um, three series off the ground um, in the past three years that, that, that came out of... Um, that came out of the US. So thankfully that, that door has has opened up and, 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 and I think, you know, the new players have really democratized um, you know, the playing field for, you know, companies all over the world. Um to, to and, and and then more the, the the more traditional US broadcasters are kind of following suit now and fine. I think once you do your once you get in there once you're kind of yeah. Yeah, you do your best to stay in there. So that's 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 less of an, an issue now. But I suppose you look yeah. No, but I was just going to say it's interesting that you mentioned with with kind of the ad, uh, advent of Netflix and Amazon and and people, it has it has upped the game for everybody for traditional broadcasters and the digital players. There there has been a sense that, as you call it, that democratization of the market is being driven at a at a fair pace. Oh, absolutely! I mean, it's it, it's a it's a wonderful thing, really. And, and now you see that uh, more and more new players coming onto the market, like uh, the HBO. Which was Warner Brothers, is, yeah. is Peacock, which is um, NBC Universal. They're coming, and they're they're planning on on you know um, they're looking for global for footprints as well. Um, you know they'll be available on our shores in uh, in you know in a matter of eighteen months. And then there's more niche players that are just specialists in whatever you know maybe preschool streamer services or kids streamer services or documentary streamers. You know that are just specialists, and, and you know there's more and more places for. For us to be able to go, I think, and, and be able to, to place our content, so, um, so a much wider, a much wider potential audience for you to sell to uh, as as that continues to grow. Absolutely, yeah. Can I ask you? We were mentioned briefly uh, earlier on this afternoon talking with Maggie, and we were talking about augmented reality, um, mm. and that must surely be for you and for your industry must be a, a big uh, thing that's happening and is going to happen again into the future. I mean, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that's where the, the, the you know the, the real growth is going to be. I mean, I think augmented reality are you know and app creating apps for augmented reality um, are the new are the new apps. You know, and, and certainly um, Apple's um, um, entry into the market or in the not too distant future um, next year, I believe, with their um, glasses. I think yes. could be. Um, a game changer, um, and I, I, yeah, I think in so many ways, you know, that that is a space that we want to be in. You know, we we've we've created augmented reality um, apps. We've pitched with augmented reality. Um, we're playing with it the whole time. Um, we um, we're really looking forward to seeing the the, the platform and, and and just how it's able to how our content can live in this space, but. 
Uh, absolutely. I mean, I think more so for us because it, because it's children. Um, augmented reality is much more Accessible. exciting than, yeah. than virtual reality, which is you know an all-consuming experience where yeah. you don't see any of the real world. I think that might be quite dangerous for children, you know, right. particularly young children. But I, but I think augmented reality and how we are able to um, interact with our content in the real world is not really incredibly exciting. Fantastic John I'm really out of time but I have one last question in 10 seconds we ask uh, for a piece of advice on the one kind of attribute for for the successful startup founder in a word what is it that the founders need to have or to get to help them be successful? Relationships. Relationships. Yeah lovely we heard last week tenacity but I really love that building of the relationships Um Thank you so much, John, for joining us this Pleasure, afternoon. Connor. And the very best of luck with Jam Media. Um, so that was John Rice, who's the CEO and co-founder of Jam Media. Well, that's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed our discussion on our creative world and what the future holds for the arts and entertainment sector. Do join us again next week when we'll be looking at the future of money, a cashless society, disruptor banks, and we might even look at some digital currencies. We hope that the stories you heard today will inspire you. And if you have a great idea, and are thinking of starting or scaling a company with global ambition, and you would like some support, do get in touch with us at startup at dublinbic.ie. So that's it. Join us again next week at 12 noon for Startup Nation. 